Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. And there is certainly a few choice words that come to mind when I compare a picture taken 50 years ago of the Great Barrier Reef, or perhaps of sea ice in the Arctic, to images of those same places today. Oceans cover 70% of our planet, but we know less about them than we do about space. Even more staggering is that, until recently, it was believed that no matter how much rubbish we poured in, our seas would be unaffected. In the Philippines, a whale washed ashore in 2019 with nearly 90 pounds of plastic in its stomach. We found incredibly high levels of plastics on the seafloor, and these were mostly microfibers. Even here, the Mariana Trench, in the deepest part of the ocean, plastic has found its way more than six and a half miles down. Now we need only look to the uninhabitable dead zone off the Gulf of Mexico or the Great Pacific Garbage Patches to see that our ocean ecosystems are on the brink of collapse. Can we still turn the tide? Or have decades of neglect and inaction seen all hope drain away? I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today, we hear from the woman who is conserving our planet through photography. We are an ocean planet. The ocean produces 50% of the oxygen we breathe, and it absorbs one quarter of carbon emissions. Importantly, the ocean has also absorbed 90% of the excess heat that we have generated through fossil fuels, carbon. So yeah, 80% of the biodiversity of the planet lives in the ocean. Three and a half billion people on this planet depend on ocean protein for their livelihoods. It is the most important ecosystem on planet Earth. But the oceans are struggling. They're warming, rising, and being choked by plastic with warnings of a developing ecological disaster and the need to avert a mass extinction event. Our seas need powerful advocates, and I'm talking to one on this episode. Thank you for having me here. This is so much fun. My name is Christina Mittermeier, and I am a Mexican marine biologist and photographer and founder of an organization called Sea Legacy. Christina Mittermeier pioneered the field of conservation photography, and her organization, uses visual storytelling to further the cause of ocean conservation. And she is still full of hope that, with enough investment, ocean ecosystems can be revived, which in turn will help to fight climate change by absorbing more carbon dioxide. 
But Christina knows that the time to act is now. Our planet is at the crossroads. We are facing a critical time in the history of our planet and humanity. And I still don't feel, Adam, like the general public has been awakened to the fact that we are on the edge of the precipice. And I don't want to be catastrophic, but, you know, I'm somebody that spends a lot of time in the front lines. The ocean in particular, I would say, is pretty close to the brink of collapse. Uh, We have taken too much out and we have dumped too much in and it is time to pay attention. When you say collapse, you mean presumably for the species that live there? Yeah, I mean, if you agree with me that almost 80% of biodiversity on this planet lives in the ocean and we know so little about it, the ocean would be the engine of this planet is what keeps this planet alive. And the fact that we don't really fully understand how it does that, how it works and how much damage we've already exerted on it, I think is pretty serious. It's like losing an engine. <laughs> so you just you just touched on on this a bit and what you were just saying there. I, I was going to ask sort of for people who are, you know, who think of the ocean just as a place to go and swim or maybe to travel across. Just explain a little bit more about why the oceans are such an important part of the world's biosphere. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's the largest ecosystem on our planet. 70% of the surface of planet Earth is covered with salt water. And when you go to the beach and you get tumbled by a wave and you take a big gulp of that salt water, well, it's not just water we're drinking. The ocean is populated by an enormous number of microorganisms called the plankton, which includes both animals and plants. And these creatures are in charge of maintaining the atmospheric balance of gases. You know, they perform photosynthesis, they absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they sink it to the bottom of the ocean, they exhale the oxygen that we breathe. In short, you know, without an ocean, there's no life on planet Earth. I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because often I think people will think of the sort of nature side of it, they won't necessarily be so aware perhaps of the role the oceans have played as a break on climate change, you know, the huge amount of heat they've absorbed to date. And, and and you travel around a lot, Christina. Are you shocked or surprised when you travel to places you've been to before and, you know, you go back to photograph them later? What's your sort of experience there? Well, you know, there are many, many places that are in tremendous disarray. Uh, you know, you can see entire ecosystems that have been devastated. But there's also really good news. You know, there are places that are still in pretty good shape and we should be hurrying as fast as we can to protect those places because we don't have many of those left. One such place is the Gulf of California in my home country of Mexico. It is an incredible ecosystem, rich with wildlife. We're about to see some extinctions there, which is tragic, but there's still so much more that needs to be protected and worth protecting. And and what would be an example of one that sort of gone downhill when you went back? I mean, I I hate being the gloom and doom person, but I think we're going to lose the vaquita, which is the smallest cetacean on the planet. It lives in the upper Gulf of California. We have known for 30 years that this animal needed help. And, you know, I I, I don't know what it is about humans, Adam. We just kind of like sit back and hope somebody else does something about it. There was a time when we could have done something to save the vaquita, but it is too little too late. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next 10 years to see it go. I remember writing about them before. Aren't we down to like something like 20 or something like that? I can't yeah, remember. An animal that we know very little about. It's solitary habits. You know, it lives in very murky water, difficult to study it. And it's very sad. 
what is it do you think about photography that allows people to connect with nature in a way that other mediums might not yeah i love talking to people like you because you're an environmental reporter so you understand just how critical our situation is but you and i know that uh, leading the public with the gloom and doom gets us nowhere people don't want to hear bad news so the reason i use photography is because it allows me to remind people of just how beautiful our planet is, how special the biodiversity, our fellow passengers on this spaceship, how amazing they are. And something that Martin Luther King said, you know, he didn't start the famous speech by telling us he had a nightmare. He told us what the dream was. And I think photography allows me to remind people of where we are going. If we want to restore health and abundance to the ocean, there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. But guess what? We have no choice because, you know, Elon Musk has not sent me my ticket to go to Mars, nor do I want to go. I want to stay right here. And I would love to live on a planet that has a living ocean. Yeah, I imagine Mars for a person like you who's into the oceans is probably not your dream destination. Um, so if you if you mind sort of casting your mind back, Christina, uh, I wondered, have you always been passionate about photography? What's the sort of roots of it? No, I think I've always been passionate about nature, about wildlife and about the environment. Sometimes reporters ask me, Christina, why do you care so much about the environment? I'm like, duh, because I live on a planet that requires a living environment. It is a, a selfish pursuit. Um, no, photography came to me uh, as I was an adult already, and it just revealed itself to be a tool that I was good at, that I could use to engage larger audiences into this quest to maintain this planet alive. And so where did the nature bit come from? Did you, it was your childhood, did you have much time in, well, yeah, give us a sense of the place where you grew up. Oh, I grew up in central Mexico, which is beautiful, but I think, and please correct me if you disagree, that every child on this planet is born with an innate curiosity about nature and a love for animals. And as parents, we beat that out of our children with our own fears and our own ignorance. So I think I was born loving nature and my parents just allowed me to pursue my, my wild interest in insects and birds and crocodiles. And I read a lot of books. I looked through magazines. I watched a lot of TV programs about nature. And I was not one of those children that heard, you know, if you're a biologist, you're going to starve. You know, I was allowed to pursue my dreams. So what, what's the sort of uh, Mexican equivalent of like in England, you'd be something like, I don't know, catching sticklebacks or looking at tadpoles or something. What's the Mexican equivalent of that? Well, Mexico is one of the most mega diverse countries on the planet. So the Benson and where you're looking, right? I grew up in the central mountains in the what's known as the volcano ring lot of wildlife uh, and a lot of domestic cattle as well. A lot of indigenous communities live there. So I could pursue tremendous explorations on biodiversity, plants, animals, insects, birds, lots of cows, horses, goats. <laughs> I always think of like amazing migratory species as well, like monarch butterflies, obviously, oh, as well. Yeah. But I don't know if you've got yeah. those coming through. I know. And, and, and back in those days, you know, they were migrating. Now it's so hard to find them. So as, as you look back on your sort of work in your career, do you have a kind of favourite photograph of yours? That I know that's a silly question in a way because you God knows how many you've produced, but, you know, a, a photograph that you felt was really powerful in terms of telling a story about the oceans. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to be a working photographer. So I just returned from a trip to Ethiopia. I wanted to see the, you know, how severe drought affects indigenous communities in some of the most remote places in Africa. 
And I'm in love with the photographs I made. <laughs> I think they're so fantastic. But there are a handful of photographs in my career that are storytelling images that have had tremendous impact. And one of the most memorable ones is a, a photograph of a starving polar bear that I photographed in Baffin Island in northern Canada. And to me, it was just... Um, you know, a reminder that wildlife is already suffering, that when we say that polar bears are going to disappear in the next 10 to 50 years, this is what it looks like. Starvation is a horrible way of dying. And I just wanted to make the world stop for a second to consider the real consequences of what we're doing. Was that one way when you were taking it, you thought, oh, this is going to have an impact? Was that obvious when you were doing it or? Oh, well, I knew it was going to have an impact. I knew that it was a good storytelling image. I mm -hmm. had no idea that it was going to become, you know, viral and controversial. And I didn't know that the people who are keen on maintaining the status quo on fossil fuels would, you know, <laughs> spend so much time, money and effort trying to discredit the image. What was the controversy? The controversy was the fact that I didn't, talk to the bear and I didn't do any forensics, so I could not tell for sure why this animal was dying. You know, my assumption is there is no sea ice. It cannot go out to hunt, but it could have been something else. You know, I could see that it was limping. Maybe it was shot by a trophy hunter. And trophy hunting is another big issue that I'm, you know, very passionate about. So um, anyway, the image became controversial and the more people talked about it, the more viral it went to the point that it became one of Time Magazine's top 10 images that year. It was just interesting experience. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about photography. We've talked a bit about nature. Where, where did your, where and when, I guess, did your passion for conservation and photography sort of merge? You know, I, I studied um, biochemical engineering in fisheries and aquaculture because that's what was available to me in Mexico. I wanted to be an animal person, a marine biologist. And finding a job was really difficult when I came out of university. So I was very lucky to find a job in conservation with one of the larger conservation groups. And just by chance, we happened to share office space with a, one of Mexico's top photographers. So, you know, just I spent a year working in conservation and sharing office space with a photographer. The two naturally merged. And I... I remember the moment when I realized that all the science in the world is pretty dry to the general public. But when you couple it with beautiful photography, you can make people stop for a second. And if you can catch their attention with a good caption, they might be interested enough to read the whole story. And so I thought, yeah, photography opens the door, lowers the price of entry, and we can get a much bigger audience to engage with the conversation. That's really interesting. And you've been sort of documenting the natural world through a lens for many years. I wondered what sort of maybe one or two of the changes that you'd highlight that you've seen in, in, in the natural world. What, what, what would you maybe pick out? I mean, some for better and some for worse, right? Right here in British Columbia, where I live now, we can see that the ocean, as it gets warmer, and as we have extracted some critical uh, wildlife from the ecosystems like sea otters, kelp is really suffering. You know, we have an invasion of urchins now that devour the kelp because there's no predators, there's no otters. And you can see how painful it is for the entire ecosystem, how everything suffers. You can also see when you reintroduce the otters, you know, how the kelp quickly comes back. So we know how to fix some of these problems. 
on the on the bright side, I've been able to do diving in places like the Galapagos, which has been protected for a long time. Revilla Gijedo National Park of the Pacific Coast of Mexico. It's a magical place because it's been protected. So you can see very large animals, enormous tuna, enormous manta rays. Like even the ecological processes are huge. You know, the upwellings, the storms, you can see nature working as it should. So we know how to fix it. And the scientific community has given us very specific steps that we need to take collectively as a society to restore health and abundance to the ocean by 2050. I'm talking to the Mexican marine biologist and photographer, Christina Mittermeier, and I'm keen to find out more about her visual storytelling. Christina's images create awareness of the conservation issues facing our oceans, but does she think her photos can have the power to change a government's policy and improve outcomes for the environment across the world? I think so, and i tell you why. Becoming a celebrated photographer, somebody who has worked for National Geographic, gives you like a magical key that opens the door for people to want to talk to you. So I find myself being invited by the Minister of the Environment and the President and the Prime Minister to have this exact conversation I'm having with you. And you can see when you talk to another human being one-to-one, share some personal perspectives, some personal experiences, how the light bulb goes on. Mm. So I, I can give you many, many examples of those conversations changing the way that those ministers, that those politicians, you know, make decisions. And I feel like that's my job. I call it ocean diplomacy. So, for example, we've also been working on trying to build a moratorium for deep sea mining. We just simply do not know enough about how our oceans work, how the deep sea is imperative for the survival of our planet. And we're going to be putting, you know, mining operations down there. I don't think so. So having these conversations with people at events, you know, with a glass of wine Mm. or a beer, you realize that most Government officials are not trained scientists. You know, they rely on people like me, like you, to inform. And and so that's what I do. And I try to engage them with my photographs and try to have a positive conversation that is not judgmental or accusatory, you know, just an invitation to learn more and be curious. That's really funny you brought up deep sea mining because I think people might not have heard of it before. But as as I recall, there's a deadline coming up isn't there this sort of june or july where a pacific island country and a i think a canadian company will end up going ahead with it aren't they if if i remember that right yeah but i think canada uh, has put in a temporary moratorium on it uh, while Mm. we find out more I, i overheard one of the department of fishery and oceans canada top scientist a deep sea ecologist with a phd talking to the minister and saying if you allow this to happen There is going to, I mean, they tell you that they're going to be picking up these nodules, but that's not what they do. You know, they're going to be removing and, you know, disturbing the bottom of the ocean, releasing an enormous amount of carbon that's been stored there for thousands of years and creating a plume of sediments that may be radioactive and that will stay in the water column for 100 years. Like the consequences are serious, you know. (laughs) So Yeah. Well, we've just been talking about that and we talked a little bit about your about the polar bear photo there and maybe what that told us about the bigger picture of a, changing, a rapidly changing Arctic and melting sea ice. Why is storytelling a sort of an important part of conservation? I think storytelling is the equivalent of marketing 
and communications, right? If we, if we treated the environment and nature as a business, it should have an arm that does its public relations and its marketing for it because animals don't have a voice. And so I feel that that's why the work that Sea Legacy does that conservation photographers like myself do is so important. Storytelling is important because people don't relate to these places readily. You know, everybody's busy going to their job or their school. They're not thinking about Antarctica melting, but it is. <laughs> mm. So telling the story of why it matters to them in their lives, you know, all of these catastrophic events are happening somewhere else, but they're going to come and knock on our door very soon. I suppose in a similar vein, when you think of storytelling using photos, I wondered if there's like maybe an individual, we talked about the bear earlier, but I wonder if there's like another example where it's made some sort of impact or some sort of difference. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if there's any particular photo because it's never, conservation is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so it's never that singular moment, although I do strive as a photographer to create those iconic photographs. Because if I say to you something like uh, Vietnam, Napalm, I know exactly the photograph you're thinking about. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and the kid. You yeah, know, yeah, when, yeah. I started, <laughs> when I started thinking about coining the term conservation photography, I was thinking precisely about that. You know, war photography has created enormous change in the hearts and minds of the public and their relationship with war. The war on biodiversity is no different. And I just wanted to have a toolkit for talking about what's happening to the natural world in the similar way. Mm, that's really interesting. Tell us a bit more about what you've got upcoming in terms of your expeditions, Christina. Oh, well, I have such a busy, busy, busy year ahead of us. We have been working in the Gulf of California, helping local nonprofit organizations that are pushing for the creation of a biosphere reserve in the lower Gulf of California. So if you imagine the peninsula, Baja, from Loreto, down to Cabo, all the way to Magdalena Bay, a biosphere reserve that keeps the industrial fishing fleet away, that protects nine species of whales, the way of life of local fishermen and the tourism industry. So I've been working on that. Sea Legacy One, our boat, is now headed to French Polynesia. And we're going to be working, hopefully, very closely with the Ministry of Tourism and Culture. And this is the only country in the world that joins these two things together to tell the story of indigenous-led marine protected areas in the Pacific. And uh, in addition to that, I am going to Australia. We're going to start a project with the government of Australia, the government of Indonesia, and the government of Timor-Leste to build a migratory swimway that connects these three countries so that species can freely travel between these three areas uh, without the danger of encountering a fishing fleet. Tell me a bit as well about Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative, Christina. I understand Rolex supports you in your work when advocating for better conservation practices across the globe, but why is that crucial to your work? Well, I'll tell you something. I get approached by so many brands that would love to partner with me, but I'm not interested in selling anything. When Rolex came to me to ask me to be part of their Perpetual Planet Initiative, I thought to myself, well, here's a very serious company that's legendary for the work that they have done for the oceans already. And they're asking me to lend my voice, my influence, and my photography to the work that they're doing. And to me, that was amazing because what they bring to the table is, of course, not just money, but an incredibly large audience. And that's what I'm interested in. If I can grab a microphone and share some of these thoughts with people 
who may or may not care, who may or may not have heard about this, well, then that's what I should be doing. And we're speaking just after this ICs treaty has been agreed, which is a treaty to protect areas beyond uh, countries' national exclusive economic zones, uh, this sort of unregulated kind of Wild West. Uh, that's taken years to get that, which is why people were so kind of euphoric about it. What do you think, Christina, are the biggest challenges we face with protecting our oceans? I think the fact that the ocean is out of mind for not just regular audiences, but for governments as well. I was shocked, incredibly surprised when I heard that of all the sustainable development goals that the United Nations has given us, sustainable development goal number 14, which deals with the oceans, is the most underfunded. So when you look at the numbers, uh, in order to keep the ocean alive, we need about $180 billion a year worth of investments in conservation and developing the right industries and supporting communities. At the moment, we only have $25 billion in investments. So we have a big gap of $150 billion. And you know, whenever I can grab a microphone, I would like to invite companies and governments to make more serious investments in protecting the ocean. Mm, it's worth some context as well, isn't it? I mean, 25 billion might sound like a lot, but it's almost the same price as a nuclear power station we're building in Britain. <laughs> it's not really that much in the scheme of it, is it? No, just to keep the most important ecosystem on our planet alive, you know? Yeah. What about sort of vested interests? Because people obviously often think about different sectors that use the oceans. I mean, what what, what sort of role there? When you look at the most, um, the biggest sectors of investment in the ocean, of course, oil and gas exploration is the largest one, followed by shipping. And these two, and of course, industrial fishing comes in very closely third. These cannot be the only, you know, investments into the ocean. These are all extractive, destructive industries, you know. So we as a society need to make serious investments into the protection of the ocean. I would like in the next 10 years to see, you know, a big wedge for this type of investment in the development of more seaweed farmings, in the development of more sustainable types of aquaculture, in the development of rethinking ocean fisheries. You know, the way that we have been doing it is no longer acceptable because now we know that the biomass of the ocean, the fish, the whales and the sharks are critical to maintaining the balance of carbon dioxide on our planet. You mentioned three industries there. Do you think the solution is working with those or do you think it's more of a kind of marine park, you can't go here type approach? Well, scientists tell us that we need to take six actions and that we have to do them all at the same time. We need to create more marine protected areas. At the moment, I think we're teetering on 8%. We need to get to 30% by 2030. We need to protect more species, animals like sharks, whales, sea turtles, critically important to the survival of humanity on planet Earth. We need to stop the flow of pollution into the ocean. And it's not just plastics, it's sediments, it's you know, fossil fuels. We need to rethink industrial fishing, seriously. We need to restore the habitats that have been degraded, and that includes coral reefs and mangroves. And we have to recognize that the ocean is at least one quarter of the solution to climate change. We need to recast it as a solution and not just a victim. That's important. And then it's, it's important to remember as well that word industrial, isn't it, on fishing? We're not saying no fishing anywhere, are we? No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of very valuable artisanal fishing efforts. The small fishermen in the coast, you know, they're not the culprits. It's these massive fleets of industrial boats that are sucking the life out of the ocean. You know, it's a resource that belongs to all of humanity. And you mentioned at the start that, you know, you fear that we are on 
sort of risk of collapse of the oceans and do you think there's still hope to reverse the damage that we've done to them and that this and the species that rely on them yeah this is where the hope part comes in <laughs> the ocean is incredibly resilient and whenever you create a marine protected area it doesn't take very long for all life to rebound so all we have to do is make sincere efforts and honest investments into the protection of the ocean these things are not cheap and they need support and they need people to pay attention. But marine protected areas are our first line of defense and we need to get to 30% protection by 2030. And coming back to your photography, I mean, do you have in your mind's eye a sort of place or a, a species or something that might be a good example to go and visit to get that sort of photo of showing that things can be restored or that, I don't know, do you have... Or maybe you've even taken it already. Well, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, we happened to be working in the Caribbean and we started working in Panama and we're very surprised when the Minister of the Environment, uh, Miliciades Concepcion, called us to say, Panama wants to be the first country in Central America to protect 30% of its coastal waters before 2030. Can Sea Legacy, can Christina and Paul come to Panama to help us build that public support, you know, that buzz of excitement? And we did. And Panama became the first country. Guess what? Costa Rica went like, wait a minute, you know, we're the green country. So they quickly moved to protect. And then Colombia followed suit. Ecuador followed suit. We just got back from Panama again. President uh, Laurentino Cortizo decided that he wants to protect 50% of his coastal waters. And he just did. And it's all because, you know, the photography gets people excited. It reminds us of why this is valuable. This is treasure. This is valuable it needs to be protected <laughs> you mentioned paul there just let people who don't know who paul is just uh, explain who he is paul nicklin well he's uh he's my husband but he's also one of the top wildlife photographers of our generation chances are if you're listening you're probably already following on him on instagram i suspect it's fair to say isn't it well, he's got eight million followers if you, so. if you if you're not you should go and look him up um so I wondered, when you're sort of going out and selecting places to photograph um, and, and looking at projects, I wondered, when you're selecting stuff, what are you trying to evoke from people in terms of emotions and, and how, how, you know, how are you trying to make them feel? Yeah, you know, the only emotion that's more powerful than fear is hope. So we're looking always for those stories where hope is at the center, where amazing heroes around the world are doing incredible work to protect our oceans and succeeding. And we want to tell those stories because, you know, the story of possibility is the story that's worth telling. I think it's, um, what do they call it? Uh, fate is destiny, right? I mean, if you only talk about gloom and doom, well, that's where you're going to go. So we're always looking for those beautiful stories. For example, in French Polynesia, this concept uh, called Rahui, which has existed in Polynesian culture for many years, and it literally means leave it alone. So when an area is under Rahui, it's set aside for protection. And I think these, these concepts are valuable and are beautiful and inspiring. So those are the stories we want to tell. I've never heard of that. Rahui, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. yeah. What, someone would say this forest is Rahui or what, how would someone yeah. there use it? I don't know. The Maori, the Eastern Islanders, the French Polynesians, the Hawaiians, they all embrace this concept of Rahui. And so we need to make it more mainstream. Is it, uh, is it just a sort of cultural thing or is it a religious thing, a spiritual thing? What's the sort of... You know, that's my second passion. And that is, you know, tapping into the knowledge of indigenous people to heal our planet. And indigenous people have been treading on planet Earth with a lighter footprint for thousands of years. 
and we deem them to be primitive, uneducated, poor, and not worthy of paying attention, but the opposite is true. They are the last people on this planet that are connected to the operating system on planet Earth. And concepts like Rahui go back thousands of years, and they're not exclusive of people in Polynesia. Indigenous people have always known that you cannot cut down all the trees and expect the forest to be there tomorrow. And sort of zooming right out and looking at the big picture, Christina, I mean, we've been talking about pretty big stuff, but what cause for hope do you see for the future of oceans per se? Where do you see, you know, where are the specific things that make you feel hopeful? You know, I would like to think that I have been a tiny piece of a very large puzzle in creating awareness, excitement, momentum for ocean conservation. So we have never seen as much attention paid to the oceans as we are now. We have many, many conferences, countries sitting around tables talking about what we're going to do with the ocean. But we also have the industry, you know, the players that have been exploiting and destroying the ocean doing the same. So these two things are about to come to a head and they're not going to go easily. You know, the industrial fishing fleets, the investments that they have, the special interests, they're not going to just fold over and say, sure. So the battle is on and it really is the battle of good versus evil. I am very hopeful that the power of the people will be greater than the people in power and that we are going to persevere and protect our oceans. I wonder if there's any like places or people that maybe give you that reason for hope as well that you'd single out? You know, we we strive at Sea Legacy to shine the spotlight on the heroes that are actually doing the work in the front line. So if you want to be inspired, head to sealegacy.org and we will introduce you to incredible people around the world that are making a huge difference. Give one of them a shout out, Gon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about Tituan Bernicot. She's the founder and the CEO of the Coral Gardeners. Uh, This is a group of young people in French Polynesia. When Tituan was 16 years old in high school, he went snorkeling. He realized that his home coral reef was dying. So he started an organization and he Googled how to restore the reef. And that's what he's <laughs> at, been si- doing. at 16 years old. I at wish 16, I'd been that. <laughs> like a Pied Piper, he rallied his entire high school, you know, classmates to become coral gardeners. And he changed a lot of people's lives, but he also created a brilliant organization that today is supported by Rolex and that is, you know, now syndicating to other countries. They are an inspiration. They're doing amazing work. So yeah, shout out to Tituan. How much hope do you have for the planet and humanity as a whole? You know, some days I am more hopeful than others. The days when I really, you know, feel hopeful is when general people anywhere in the airport, in the supermarket are talking about the environment. So to the people that are listening today, if you want hope, we have to build that hope. Please care. Please be informed. Please be hopeful. Mm. That's really, uh, do you know what that reminds me of? Um, I'm not name dropping here, but it just it feels really um, salient. It's, uh, I was interviewing um, Greta Thunberg once and um, my my daughters, uh, both they're sort of young teenagers. And so obviously they were extremely excited by the fact I was talking to her and um, they came into the room and I asked if they could ask her questions anyway one of them said you know if you, you had a sort of superpower and you could change one thing to fix the environment what would it be and Greta's answer was basically to change people's attitudes and to get people talking about it more so yeah the equivalent would be to see be sitting in an airplane and watch the engines go up in flames and say oh I'm too cool to care you know we are <laughs> on fire we need to care and we need to do it with a hopeful inspiring outlook what kind of planet do we want to live in let's build it 
Whether you know it or not, whether you live by the ocean or not, it doesn't matter. The entire planet is influenced by this living ocean of ours. So we're all ocean creatures and we live on an ocean planet. My goodness, there is hope, Adam. Let's not give up. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, the marine biologist and photographer, Christina Mittermeier. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The producer is Danny Garlick. The series producer is Anya Pierce. The production coordinator is Oliver Adamson. And the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.